Hey, I want to do a little review with you this morning. Um, so we're in the book of Deuteronomy. If you're new to Revolution Church, we like to do books of the Bible. That way God kind of sets the agenda and not Gary. And uh, that's a good thing for you and me. Um, and one of the things I, I use as a study tool to kind of help us understand the scripture is what's called chiastic structure. And it's been a long time, probably about 20 weeks actually, since I went over the, whole, the structure of the whole book of Deuteronomy. And just so you know, this will help us understand where we're at right now. You know, when you're traveling and you, you pull out the map, old-fashioned map, or you look up on your GPS, you want to see where you are. Like, here's where you started, here's where you're going, and we're right here, okay? Kind of gives you a gauge, and that's what I want to show you. So the book of a chiastic structure is the way that they wrote in that time where you begin with a topic and you end with similar topic and you work your way into the middle which is the main meat of the sandwich if you will so the very beginning verses is what's called the prologue it talks about the birth of Israel and the book ends with an epilogue talking about the death of Moses so you have a birth of a nation the death of its prophet or its founder and then it works its way in the opening of the book the first the first uh, Five chapters, basically, six chapters, it's talking about introductory things, looking backward. Here's where you came from. Here's all that God brought you through. Egypt, the plagues, and the, the Passover, and all those things like that. And then the book ends with looking forward, and here's where you're going. And then it moves forward with uh, prophecies of here's what's going to happen to you because you obey. Here's also what's going to happen to you because you're going to disobey. And the book ends with those same warnings. In fact, uh, chapter 29, notice the start of that. That's where we're at today. Just to kind of give you a, an idea. We're past the halfway point. We're over the curve a little bit there. And then it talks about the Horeb covenant, which is Mount Horeb. There's a covenant it gave there. Mount Horeb is the same word for Mount Sinai. What special tablets were given at Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments. Good job. So Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, same thing. So he talks about, here's what I gave you back then, you know, preparing to go into the promised land. And then he gives them another covenant called, from Mount Moab saying, in greater detail, here's how you live out the Ten Commandments. Um, actually, we'll skip that for today. And so the very middle is, here's the covenant stipulations. Now, there are some covenants that God makes that they are unconditional. Like that Israel is God's chosen people. That's unconditional. No matter what they do, they will always be God's chosen people. Another unconditional is, covenant is if you put your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, it's unconditional. That doesn't change. So, But there are some conditions that have stipulations. Like if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey and you don't treat the poor right and you don't obey my commands and you worship other gods, you will be cursed. And so, in fact, last week we talked about the curses. But here's what I want you to notice. It's something that's really fascinating. And this is a biblical principle that we need to understand. That right in the middle of all the covenant stipulations of God saying, you need to do this, this, and this, there's a covenant on either side. In other words, in the middle of that sandwich is God protecting you with his covenants. Okay, God keeping up his end of the bargain to help you do what you're supposed to do. Last week we talked about, from Deuteronomy 28, how that if you don't obey, what's going to happen? going to be cursed okay and again Moses was distinctly for Israel at this time but the principle still applies but we learned last week that the curse brings confusion frustration 
It closes up the heaven, which means our prayer life is hindered, and it brings out the worst in us. Disobedience will bring out the worst in you. So here's where we're at today in the concluding prophetic review. And so we're, you know, you can see that we're probably about five or six chapters away from ending the book. So this morning, our, our scripture is Kathleen Green. Come on up here, Kathleen. Welcome her as she comes. Kathleen and Joel are, are fairly new to Revolution, but they're jumping right in. They've gone to Life Group, and uh, they painted the whole outside of the building last week. No, just kidding. Just kidding. But they, they're jumping right in, and, and uh, we're really glad to have you as a part of Revolution Church. All right, here we go. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And Sorry, how much is it? <laughs> and to all his servants. There we go. My bad. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, and these great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making the sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God. To go and serve the gods of those nations, beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. 
and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far, from, from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing grown, where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Very good. Long chapter, tough words. Give her a hand. Good job. All right. We're thankful for the word of the Lord. Um, so the message this morning is about the secret things of the Lord. That's the last verse, and that's kind of the key verse. And just to give you the setting, there's about one and a half million people that are scattered over these two mountaintops, and Moses and the Levites and the priests are all in the middle pronouncing all this and reading it out to them so they can hear. It's kind of like a natural amphitheater here in this setting. And he says that these are the words of the covenant. Now, Covenant is not a word that we use much today. Probably the only time you will hear the word covenant outside of the Bible is maybe at a wedding when they call it a marriage covenant. There's a difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract spells out that if you do this, this, and this, I'll do this. You know, and then you read the fine print that if you don't do this, this, and this, they'll come take your phone away or you'll get your house foreclosed on, all those things like that. A covenant is, I'm going to do this no matter what you do. I'm going to love you till death do us part, or whatever it may be. That's a covenant. And God enters into covenants with his people. And again, some of them have uh, conditional stipulations, but some of them are just because that's what he's going to do. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is where God asks Abraham to do something that's really strange to us, but to them it's very common. So let's say a king conquered a certain land. And then he'd go around to all the different people who own property on that formally. And he'd say, from now on, you're going to pay me tribute. You're going to pay taxes to me. And what I want you to do is take a few of your sheep and your goats. I want you to cut them all in half, like right down the middle. And I want you to lay them, the halves on either side. And what I want you to do is I want you to walk through the middle of those animals that have been cut in half. As a reminder that if you don't pay your taxes to me, this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to cut you in half like these animals. Okay? So one night God goes to Abraham and says, I want you to lay out all these different animals and I want you to cut them in half. And Abraham's like, oh my gosh, 
that means he's going to make me walk through them in the morning because he's the greater and I'm the lesser. And that's usually the way it worked. So Moses cut all, I mean, Abraham cut all the animals in half and, and it was nighttime and he fell asleep. In the middle of night, God shows up as a, a, a smoking furnace. And instead of saying, Abraham, now walk through them, because if you don't do it, God himself walked through them. Sometimes two kings might walk through them together, like we'll be good to each other, we'll get along, because if you do this to me, this will be you, and if I do this to you, this will be you. But God didn't even ask Abraham to walk through it with him. God walked through the animals torn apart on his own, basically saying, someday I'm going to be torn apart because I love you, and you don't have to do anything. I'm always going to keep my promise to you. That's a powerful story. That's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And he says that, that there's, there's this covenant there at the land of Moab besides the covenant that he made at Horeb. So some people say, oh, no, he's just repeating the same covenant. Well, this verse right here says, I got one covenant, and here's another one besides it. So there's definitely two different covenants going on here, if you're keeping track. And Moses summoned all, all of Israel and said to them, you have seen all the Lord did before your eyes. Now, what did they see? Let's just kind of go back through the wilderness and even Egypt. What did they see? They, they saw hail and fire mixed coming down from heaven on Egypt. They saw swarms of gnats and flies and frogs. Their, their, their parents saw the Nile River turn into blood. Okay? They go through, they were go, went through the Red Sea that God opened up for them. And then after they got through on dry land, God closed it on the Egyptian army. And then they're like not sure where to go at night, so a pillar of fire leads them. They're not really sure where to go by day, so a cloud, a pillar of cloud leads them by day. They complain about what there is to eat, and so God gives them manna from heaven. They complain that, well, that's not enough. We want some real meat, so God sends quail to them. I mean, one miracle after another, they saw all these things, and they need to be reminded. And yet, what did they still do? They still complained. I mean, he saw this, all they did in the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh and to all of Pharaoh's servants and to the land itself. I mean, they saw God personally knock down the biggest, most powerful kingdom on the planet and let all its slaves go free. And then, and you know what? If you're living and breathing in this room this morning, you've probably seen God do some pretty amazing things in your life, right? Say amen if you've seen some good things, right? But you know what we will do just like Israel? Even though we've seen them, we still complain. We're still like, oh, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know what, where's God when all this trouble's going on? It's like, I'm still here, you know. Remember all that you've seen is what is reminding them. And so you look at these 10 plagues, and then you know that each one of these was an attack on one of the Egyptians' gods? The, tan, the, the, the Egyptians believed in hundreds of gods, but there was 10 primary ones, and God said, oh, you think they're gods? I'll show you. You want to worship frogs? Here, have about 40 million frogs. And God, they worshiped the sun, and God said, oh, you know what, I'm going to make the sun go out to where you won't even be able to see your hand in front of your face in the middle of the day. And God personally attacked each one of the gods. And guess what? The, Egypt, the Israelites saw this happen. They saw you know, the ultimate UFC fight between Elohim and Ra, and guess who went down knockout in the first two seconds? Ra did. And God stood as the ultimate champion, and they were like, wow, yeah, you're amazing. And they saw this, and yet like human beings do, we soon forget the power of God. And that's what he's trying to remind them of here in this situation. He said, you've seen all these things that he, that he did before your eyes. 
You know, we always say this phrase, seeing is believing. But is that true? I know people who've seen things and still don't believe. I've shown people evidence of the Bible being true, and they still don't believe. I, I know, if you ever watched these videos by Ray Comfort, The Way of the Master, and he asks this guy, you know, do you, do you believe in the Bible? And the guy goes, no, I'm an atheist. And he says, if I was to show you proof that the Bible is scientifically true, would you believe it? And the guy goes, wait, he asked a simple question. If I could show you proof that the Bible is scientifically true, would you believe it? Why would someone hesitate on that? And Ray Comfort went right back to him. He said, it's because of your morality. It's because you watch porn and because you want to sleep with your girlfriend. You don't want to believe these things are true. And man, he just hit them with the right in the face. A lot of people, they can see the works of God. They can see that there's a watch, but not believe there's a watchmaker. And yet, because they don't want to believe. And let me tell you, I want you to share Christ with everybody. But don't get too hung up in all these debates because it, whenever you hear someone, you show them something that's true and they go, yeah, but what about, wait a minute, I just showed you something that's true, why are you changing the subject? And when they constantly go, yeah, but what about, yeah, but what about, that means they don't want to believe. And I'm not saying end the conversation, I'm saying change the conversation to, you know what, is there a reason you don't want to believe that Jesus wants to love you and be in relationship with you? Is there a reason that you're scared of him taking control of your life? That's the real issue. It's not, well, you know, what about, you know, science and evolution? What about all these things like that? I, we can give you answers for all that, but if they keep changing the subject, we need to get to the real subject. So really, believing is what's truly seeing. Hebrews says we walk by faith, not by sight. Yeah, I'm not asking people to do blind faith, but just like you believe in gravity, just like you believe in justice, just like you believe in love, all things that you cannot see, but are profoundly true and there's evidence for them, You'd, not everything that's most important is seen. He talked about the great trials, the signs and the wonders, all these things that were done in the heavens. He said, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You see, those things come from the Lord. In Luke chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus echoes these words. He said, to you it has been given to, he's talking to the disciples, because they're asking, why are you teaching in parables? Why can't you come right out and say things plainly? He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables. My teaching is going to be in parables. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. In other words, I'm not going to just lay it out for them in black and white unless they're willing to have their own eyes to see. But when I lay it out in parables, they'll be like, yeah, 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 Jesus, get past these crazy stories, do some more miracles. You know, forget talking about the kingdom being like a treasure hidden. Can you give us some more fish and sandwiches? We're, we're, we're ready for those things. Can you just start healing our blind people and get past these stories? So Jesus is not making it easy for them. So I'm, I'm challenging you today. If, if the Bible seems like I don't really understand this or I'm not really not into all this stuff, I challenge you, ask God to give you a heart to understand. To ask God to give you eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see, and ears to see, to ears to hear. I challenge you to do that. I think most people that don't want to be involved in Christianity or say, oh, I'm not into organized religion or all those lame excuses, it's because they're scared of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But even if you know Christ your Savior, you need to be praying constantly for God to give you eyes to understand. David often prayed, 
you know, open my eyes and I behold wondrous things out of your word. He says, I have led you, okay? I have led you all these years. Who's leading you right now? When you get up in the morning and you think about your day and you fire up your computer and you start checking your email and you start laying out, organizing your tasks, who's in charge? Who's leading you? Again, another challenge to you is why not ask God, would you order my steps today? Would you lead me? Would you get, make my path clear so that I can follow you? And I can even see Moses saying, you know, I've led you for 40 years. I can't even believe that this happened without tears streaming down his face. For, for a couple reasons. One, he's pleading with them. And it's been a rough 40 years. Number two, he's not going in, which makes it bittersweet because he's happy for them, but he's not going, which means he's going to be dying soon. But also, he's, this is maybe the last time that he sees them. He says, and he, he reminds them of this. Have you guys noticed that your clothes haven't worn out? It wasn't like there was a 24-hour Walmart in the wilderness where they'd go, hey, I need to go a new pair of jeans. They've been wearing the same clothes for 40 years. Now, to all the husbands, you're like, yes, that's awesome. To all the wives, like, hey, I need a new dress. No, you don't, honey. It looks fine. <laughs> Look, in fact, it's stretching with you as you're getting bigger. It's just still going with you. you know? It looks great, you know. Hypothetical wife, not you, not one in this room. And you say, hey, look at my Nikes. The same tread. And think about it. Some of these people were like teenagers. And they grew up and got taller. Or their shoe size got bigger. And it's the same clothes. And not one of them is wearing out. It's, they're not outgrowing it. They're not, out, they're not wearing it out. Another subtle miracle. You know, most other miracles like boom, flash, lightning, blah, blah, blah. But this was a miracle that gradually was happening every day. And you know, God's still doing those. Every day when you're waking up and you're breathing, that is a gradual miracle you need to be thankful for. And God is doing all kinds of things with your health, with your prosperity, with your family, working behind the scenes that you're not seeing it. Every day it's growing along with you. And you need to be thankful for those things as well. I'm so glad that Moses pointed that out to them. He says, you've not eaten bread. You know, they were on a keto diet here, and so they're not eating bread. They're getting manna, which doesn't count as bread. He said, you haven't drunk any wine or strong drink. And here's why, when, and then he talks about this wine or strong drinks. He says, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now wait, what does drinking strong drink and knowing that the Lord is God have to do with each other? Well, I, I want to go into this because this is a very pertinent issue. And I think Moses is bringing this up for a purpose, and so I'm going to elaborate on it. Uh, as you know, uh, the Bible does not teach total absence from alcohol. It doesn't say you should drink it. It doesn't say you, you don't drink it. It says you need to be really careful with it, okay? And I personally am a total abstainer. Outside of NyQuil and the Lord's Supper, I don't take any alcohol at all. And it's for good reason. Every one of, I come, my mom comes from a big family. She's number three of seven. All of her siblings died of alcohol-related deaths. All of them. I, every family reunion, every family function that they were that he came to, they came in all nice and pleasant. They left all drunk and crazy, and that was back in the day when people drove drunk like it was no big deal. And it, I, how how in the world intelligent people with college degrees didn't make laws against this until recently? I have no idea. But uh, and how none of them died in drunk driving accidents. They got in several, but they never died from them. So I. 
am I sensitive to this issue? Absolutely. Uh, and let me just tell you also that, well, let me, I'll just go through this and so I won't chase the rabbit too far here. First of all, you know, people talk about practicing moderation. There's a challenge with that. It's very difficult to do. My dad was one of the few people that I knew that actually drank moderately, okay? Every once in a while, he would host a poker night. Again, my dad wasn't a Christian, and he would buy beer for all the guys there. And then after the party, there'd be some beer in our fridge. And my dad might drink one or two a month, literally, like with a pizza or some peanuts or some seafood. He might drink a beer, and that was it. I never saw my dad drunk. I saw my mom drunk a few times. And again, I saw most of my relatives drink almost all the time. Most of them were functional alcoholics. They were drunk on the weekends. They'd, they'd clean up and go to mass, and then they'd get drunk again all over again, and they'd do all these things. But the Bible makes it very clear. Do not get drunk with wine. Drunkenness is absolutely forbidden. And in America, most of our alcohol, different from biblical alcohol, is designed to give you a buzz. It's designed to get you drunk. It is much, much stronger than what Jesus and Paul and Timothy drank in biblical times. So keep that in mind. But it says, do the opposite. Instead of being full of alcohol, changing your behavior, changing your words, slurring your speech, be full of the Holy Spirit and changing your behavior and perfecting your speech and your thoughts. And so there's a contrast there between what, the, what wine can provide and what the Holy Spirit provides. Also, keep in mind this, that what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. You watch a little bit of bad movies and tell your kids to close their eyes, they're going to watch worse movies, probably. You do this much alcohol, they're probably going to do this much alcohol. And just even recently in our family, there's been several deaths related to alcohol because the parents drank this much and the kids went off the wall crazy drinking this much. So just be prepared. Are you willing to deal with that? That you, you having a little bit of alcohol here and there, are you willing to prepare to deal with one of your kids becoming an alcoholic and possibly even losing their life? Again, I'm, am I trying to scare you? Yes, because I think alcohol is extremely dangerous, especially today's alcohol, which the proof of it is much, much higher than what Jesus in biblical times dealt with. So there's also the problem of location. Again, if you feel a peace between you and God to have a glass of wine with your pasta and a white wine with your fish or whatever you complicated do with all your wines and stuff like that, that's great. My suggestion to you, though, is you keep that to yourself, that you keep that in your home. You keep that a private thing between you and God if you feel like God has given you peace about that. I was doing counseling with a couple years ago, and they both became new Christians. And the husband was still struggling with alcohol. And when he got saved, he went cold turkey and, and, and didn't want to drink at all. But then he started slipping, and when I was doing marital counseling with them, I was trying to find out why. He says, because she's still drinking, and she keeps the refrigerator stocked. I, I said to her, I said, are you an alcoholic? She said, no, I don't have a problem at all. I said, but he is. Don't you want to quit for him? And she goes, no, no, that's his problem. Six months later, they were divorced, so no big surprise there. But the problem with a lot of drinking is where it happens. In bars where you don't belong, where people are doing things they shouldn't be doing, at parties where you shouldn't be partying at, and all different types of things where alcohol is a big deal and places that Christians should not be at. You say, oh, Jesus hung out with sinners, but if you notice, every time he was having dinner with them, and if you want to go to the chosen, he walked in just to pull Mary out, <laughs> if you want to quote that as a biblical reference, but I would really watch where you hang out. Is it glorifying God? So 
1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. So I would ask yourself, is what I'm drinking glorifying God? And where I'm drinking at, is it glorifying God? And I would ask yourself those two hard questions. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says to abstain from every appearance of evil. If it even appears to be looking evil, or evil could be appearing in a situation, it says abstain from that and to run away from that situation. Proverbs 20. I'm just going to read these verses without comment. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 31.4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. You do see a pattern in the Bible that the higher up in leadership, you go from some drinking to no drinking. Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Isaiah 5.22. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking. At the party, they win, they win the ping pong event. They, they're just the champs of drinking wine. And valiant men with mixing strong drink. So keep that in mind with all that, that he says, hey, you need to abstain from these things so that you can know the Lord. Because if you go, when you get stressed and you go to the bottle, instead of going to the Lord, you're not really knowing the Lord. That you should. When you want to celebrate and you go to the bottle, instead of rejoicing in what God has done, you're in a dangerous situation to where the bottle can become your God. So then he says, and you will see this a lot in scriptures, these two kings mentioned. In fact, two different psalms are written about these two kings. Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan. These were two massive kings with trained armies, with advanced weaponry, and a bunch of slaves with pretty much with clubs and swords and stuff that they stole, defeated them. Which God allowed them to defeat them. Because it was God's power that caused them to run. And he reminds them. And so we need to remind ourselves. Do you remember the victories that God won for you in the past? And then he, and that will give you confidence for the battles ahead. You know, Karen is here this morning because God defeated the cancer. Amen? I mean, how big was your tumor? Golf ball size? And we were very concerned and praying for Karen. And you know what? Anytime that Karen gets down, you know what Karen needs to do? Remember what God did for her. And every single one of you in this room, you can look to something in your past where God was victorious. And God will be victorious again. And so we need to keep, that's why he keeps reminding them there's songs that the, that the Israelites sung about these two kings. It's kind of like when we sing and the rocket's red glare, the bomb's bursting in air. You know, that's a reminder to our nation of what God brought us through to give us independence. That's what they sung back then. He says, therefore, and whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, what should you do? You need to see what it's there for. It's based on something else. So based on the defeating of these kings, you need to keep the words of this covenant and do them. If God could defeat those enemies, you are now obligated to at least obey. And yet, we all know of stories, and maybe it's part of your story. Oh, God, if you'll get me out of the situation, I'll go to church every single Sunday. And they didn't. <laughs> and they didn't. They didn't live for God anymore. And he says, and by you, but, but God doesn't want you just to obey because he's domineering and a control freak. He does this so that you may prosper in all that you do. These things benefit you. Obeying your parents is good for the kids, not just the parents. Not stealing is good for you. It keeps you out of jail. Okay, obeying all of God's commandments, doing what Jesus tells you to do is good for you. 
He says, you are standing today, all of you. And he makes this very clear. Moses saying, you know what? Everybody here, from the very head of the tribes, to the elders, to the officers, to all the men, and even the toddlers, the wives, even if you're just here visiting Israel, passing through, this is for you. I'm so, you know, from the slave who chops your wood to the little maidservant who brings you water, God is saying, I'm inviting all of you to enter into a relationship with me. And so you know what? Young people that are sitting here this morning, this is for you. This isn't just your mom and dad's church. You're not just here because grandma and grandpa are here. This is for everybody of all ages. You know, Isaiah, Natalie, Jose. This is for you. That God is not just saying, go along for the ride with your parents. You need to enter into a relationship with God on your own. There's no family plan on the ticket to heaven. Everybody needs their own and accepting Christ on their own. And so it says, so that you, meaning all of you, may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that, and here's the purpose, here's why he wants to, that he may establish you as his people, and that he may be what? Your God. This is what it's all about. God has always wanted to have a people for himself. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before time, had each other in a loving relationship, and they rejoiced in each other. People will often say, well, God created man so he'd have someone to love. No, no, he had that. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Spirit, the Spirit loved the Father. They were in a wonderful relationship. They didn't do it so they'd have someone to love. They did it so they'd be able to share what they were already experiencing with mankind. And so God wanted a people for himself. He created Adam and Eve and told them, be, be fruitful, multiply. Create a people of God. Of course, Cain tried to interfere with that. And then people all along the way tried to interfere with that. And the Tower of Babel wanted to rebel against God. And God was always seeking to have a people for himself. Man, I am thankful to be a part of the people of God. Are you thankful for that? I mean, I'm so thankful that not just me as an individual, I have a relationship with God the Father, but that I'm part of a people, of a tribe or a clan that follows Jesus Christ, and we do it together. That's why it's so important. Now, let me get back to a chiastic structure right here in this passage right here. And again, I don't expect you to read all this, although it is pretty visible. But notice how it starts off with what you've seen and what you saw, and it ends with that what you've seen. It talks about Egypt. It ends with Egypt. It talks about the Lord your God, Sion, the kings, all that stuff. And then it enters into that you're standing here today, all of you, before the Lord. He stresses that in red. That all of you before the Lord follow together. That's why life groups are so important. That you're doing it with life with people. People who encourage you. Like, yes, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And they're encouraging. And you can confess to one. Like, hey, man, I slipped up this week. I need your help. I need your prayers. No problem. I slip up too. And we encourage one another. And we do life together in this race called life. It, it's not an individual race. We're running this as a team and we're passing the baton on, and we're doing it together, and we depend on each other. And then he talks about the sworn covenant there in the darker blue that God is making with you today, and reminds him of the covenant. And then the way, the purpose of a chiasm, so you know what's the main thing God's trying to say? It's there in the light blue, verse 13, that he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God. Is he your God? Do you follow him? If you think of someone who is a, a God, okay, that means... They're in control, and you do whatever they say. Is, is Jesus Christ your God? Are you following him? 
Are you doing what he says? Or are you just kind of, is he just a little slice of the pie over here of your life? You know, you know, I've got my job, I've got my family, I've got things, like that, and I've got my religion over here, and Jesus stays in a little box over here, and I pull him out of the box every Sunday and say, oh yeah, good job, you know, and bless me, and then you put the box away. That kind of Christianity stinks. That kind of Christianity is horrible. That's, Jesus either needs to be Lord of all or not Lord at all. And that's what the whole point of this passage he says that whoever is standing here with us today, and that's the great thing I love about the, the Bible, is how many times it talks about today. That forget about the past. You messed up last week? Fine. You've been through a divorce? Okay, no big deal. You're unemployed? That was the past. Today, you can follow me. I don't care what you've done. Aren't you so glad that Jesus said today to the thief on the cross? This guy, his whole life had been evil. He was not just a thief. The better translations say he was an insurrectionist, which means he killed people along the way to steal authority as he's leading a revolt against the Romans. And he's being crucified, and he says to the other thief, we deserve to die. That's a pretty great admission. He didn't say, oh, I was, I'm innocent. You know, a lot of people in jail, they, they're never guilty. It's always, it's always someone else's fault. This guy says, no, I'm guilty. I deserve to die. This man, Jesus, has done nothing. And then he looks at him as best he can here, and he turns his head to him and says, Ah, Jesus, remember me when you enter into the kingdom. What did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Man, have you messed up your whole life? Yes, you have. But it doesn't matter. If you look to the Savior, you'll be saved. And some people say, well, how's that even fair? You can mean you can wait till the very end of your life and then get saved? Yes, you can. And Jesus taught a whole parable about that where he said that a, a guy with a vast plantation was about to harvest. He goes out at sunrise and he hires laborers and says, I'm going to pay you $1 for the day, which was a day, not a real dollar in our sense, but a denarius. And then he goes out at 9 a.m., hires more workers. He goes out at noon, every three hours, he goes out and hires more workers. And you can tell he still doesn't have enough. He goes out at the last hour, an hour before sunset, and hires workers. And then they get the harvest done. And now he says, okay, everybody, line up, I'm going to pay you. He paid the guys who worked one hour a day's wage. And the guys who came to work at sunrise said, oh man, if he gave them that, we're probably going to get triple or quadruple. But then he goes down the line and gives everybody a denarius, a day's wage, a day's wage. He gets to the guys who worked from sunrise all day long and say, wait a minute, how is this fair? We worked all day long. He said, hey, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? It's my plantation. I can do as I please. And if I want to let people into heaven at the 11th hour when you've been saved your whole life, what is that to you? And think about that. Would you really want to live an unhappy, distraught life of sin your whole life until the last minute and then get saved? Now, since I brought that up, it's very difficult to do that. In fact, I've heard of people who plan that. And let me tell you, your heart will become cold and calloused and bitter. And what's most likely going to happen is that last hour, you're going to shake your fist at God for your life being miserable and then die. I wouldn't plan on that. And you'd never know when something, car accident, heart attack, or whatever is going to take you out, and you won't have that 11th hour. So don't, don't plan on that. But I'm so glad that God gives us a new day every day. His mercies are new every day. Um, 2 Corinthians 6 says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not saved and you're still saying, well, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, 
and I'm going to think about it some more. I'm going to take my time. You may not be guaranteed it tomorrow. You, you might get killed before you get a chance. And why would you wait? Jesus stretched out his arm, took nails for you after being beaten brutally for you and died for you because he loves you. And you want to say, ah, maybe later. I would think about that. I would really go home today and make today your day of salvation. There's no need, there's no good reason to put him off. And you're not guaranteed tomorrow, let alone this afternoon. Verse 29 says, beware though. There's a caution here. Lest there be among you in your midst, not some outsider, but right amongst the tribes of Israel, a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God. Notice it says here that men and women can be individually a bad influence on you. But sometimes it's a whole clan or a whole tribe of people who turn away from God, as we saw happen later in Israel's history. And he says you need to watch out for that kind of stuff. Watch out in your life group. Watch out in your family. Watch out in your workplace. And watch out in Revolution Church for someone who comes in and starts to turn hearts away and drifting from God. It can be a bad influence that we need to be wary of. He says that they would influence you to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware, lest among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. It starts off as a root. Do you see roots? No, roots are underground. They're kind of below the surface there. They're just kind of working their way up. And then they come up and they sprout up. They seem like no big deal. But the next thing you know, they're going to bear fruit. And everybody's like, oh, that looks good. Oh, that's bitter. Man, that's horrible. And that's the temptation with complaining with unforgiveness, with bad attitudes, negativity, all those things can bring down the people that are around you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he says, don't, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You hang out with the wrong crowd, it will bring your lifestyle down. I've had an opportunity as a pastor, you know, now since I was 22, to visit people in jail. And almost every single time I say, hey, what happened? I say, well, there was this group of friends that's the rest of the story. It always seems to start off with the bad group of friends moving in the wrong direction. Or I'll talk to parents about their kid who got in trouble. Well, they, they're just hanging out with the wrong what? Wrong. It's funny. Their, their kid is never the wrong crowd. It's always someone else is the wrong crowd. But that you have to be careful who you hang with. Who you, Your friends will determine your destiny. We've been taught that, right? Verse 19 says, One who, when he hears the words of this, this, this sworn covenant, he blesses himself in his heart. He doesn't say, God blesses me. I'm blessing myself. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm going to be safe, even though I'm walking in the stubbornness of my heart. Yeah, you all can keep that Jesus stuff to yourself. I've got my own thing going on. I'll be fine. And the Bible says you watch out for that kind of person is what Moses is warning about. Again, Moses is saying, hey, you guys are going to this promised land. Watch out for people who would turn your hearts away from the Lord. And the Lord will single that person out out of all the tribes of Israel for calamity. So the Lord will deal with that person. Be sure that if you're the person bringing in the bad influence, you're the one straying away from God, you're living a lifestyle that you don't want people at church to know or your life group to know, God says, I'm going to deal with you as an individual in that situation. And it says, and the next generation will say, when they see the afflictions of the land and the sicknesses which the Lord has made it sick, and they're going to ask, what happened? And they says, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, Nothing sown there is growing. And they're like, what happened? This used to be the promised land. And their parents will say, hey, you remember that bad influence? They came in and God, because of that, 
curse the lamb. In Micah chapter 3, it says, there's a prophecy. It says, therefore, because of you, Zion, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Literally, he says, Zion or Jerusalem, it's going to be turned over. Like you may plow a field, you just turn everything over. Everything that's on top ends up on the bottom, and it's nothing but dirt and waste. He says, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the wooded height. This was a prophecy made 285 years before Christ. But in 130 AD, Hadrian, emperor of Rome, rebuilt parts of Jerusalem and named it Aelia Capitolina, and he also plowed a furrow around the city. Not just one little line, but he plowed over all the outskirts of the city and it made a furrow around the city, which was a Roman tradition of marking the boundaries of a city and symbolically declare Roman assets. And he sowed the city full of salt. He said, I want you to fill the, turn all that dirt over, and I want you to, he had his soldiers salt the entire ground, because I don't want anything to grow there ever for a long, long time to punish Israel for what they were been doing. And Micah had prophesied all this uh, several hundred years before. And most of Israel remained a wasteland, like basically a desert, like most of the Middle East over there with the Arab nations. But until 1948, when Jews from all over the globe returned to Israel, fulfilling Bible prophecy. Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before it happened. And Isaiah, I'm sorry, six, 700 years before Christ. And then now, back in 1948, all this was fulfilled. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble all the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And God's word, if you ever say, well, how do we know the Bible is true? Look at how the Bible fulfills history, that God organizes history, and all this comes true. Micah said, someone's going to plow over Jerusalem and salt the land. Moses said, they'll salt the land. And then all this prophecy came true. And now, Israel is a major exporter of fresh produce and a world leader in agricultural technologies. In 2008, agriculture represented 2.5% of the total gross domestic product and 3.6% of experts, exports sorry, and produces 95% of its own food requirements. The land that was basically a desert that because it was plowed over and salted, it now produces all this and, uh, and they're, they're now exporting fruits and vegetables. And this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus flower. And it blossom and abundantly rejoice. And there's a picture of Israel today. Compared to all its Arab, Arab nations that live in deserts. And then here's Israel blossoming. Just like the Bible predicted. And God fulfilled that prophecy in 1948. It says, then people will say it's because they abandoned the Lord. So why was all those thousands of years of the land being cursed and now it's restored? It's because people abandoned the Lord. Take this histor historical example as a warning to you. Your kids might grow up and say, Mom and Dad, what happened? I saw pictures of you when you were younger and everything looked great, and then you went through this long stretch. And you can, I don't want you to have to be the one who says, well, because in this year of my life, I walked away from God. You don't want to be that person. You want to be the one living for the Lord as an example, so they'll ask you a different question. You don't want to be the one who left to serve other gods of fame and fortune and pleasure. It says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Does God get angry? Yes, he does. He, and just like any one of you good parents, when your kids really mess up and they, they just rebel against you and you see maybe other influences and you see this child with so much potential 
destroying their life. Does it make you angry? Yes, it should. There's a righteous type of anger, and the Lord has that. Next slide here. It says, and the Lord uprooted them from their land. That's why Israel is no longer there. And they were, they were taken away a couple times in captivity, and then they were taken away permanently until 1948. And he cast them into other lands, and Jews went around all over the world until he recalled them from the four corners of the earth. So the key verse, the last verse here, says the secret things belong to the Lord. So all of this prophecy, people are like, Moses, what are you talking about? God's like, well, God, he's like, God knows. But here's, here's the practical application. But the things that are revealed, to, belong, revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Are there things in the Bible that are hard to understand? Absolutely, right? You can say amen. It's okay. <laughs> Some people say, oh, Revelation, oh, it's so hard, you know, and it's, it's kind of scary and all those things like that. Yeah, there's parts of the Bible that, that we don't understand. There's parts of the Bible I've been, under, I've been studying for years. I'm still not sure exactly what they mean. But you can get obsessed with those things or you can focus on the things that are very clear and black and white. And let me encourage you to do that. I, whenever I see somebody who's a new believer get really obsessed with the book of Revelation or Daniel, I'm like, good, study that. But if you make that your only focus, you're gonna probably get it messed up. And I see a lot of people go off into tangents and you know, oh, so-and-so president's the, the Antichrist and that's the mark of the beast. And they get all obsessed with all these things. You don't know any of those things. Those are the secrets of the Lord. He's going to reveal them in his time. You can keep studying them. But there's so many verses in the Bible that you know exactly what they mean. You know exactly what they mean, and you're not living them. So if you're ignoring the obvious but getting obsessed with the opaque, that's an imbalance that you want to be careful about. It says that you, there's some things that are revealed to us, and that we may do all those words. Do the things that you know are obvious. Many people will come to me and say, Gary, how do I know... God's will for my life. Where should I go to college and who should I marry? I'm like, these verses right here that, are, that you do know, do all those and God will open those doors for you. Don't get so obsessed with the question marks. Focus on the exclamation points and what you know for sure that God is doing and wants you to obey. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about this secret. It says, but we impart, a Paul the apostle speaking here, we impart a secret. We're, let, we're opening this door to the secret and the hidden wisdom of God. We're revealing this to you which God decreed before the ages of, the, of our glory, for, for our glory. None of these rulers of this age understood. So the, the prophecy, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Pilate and Herod, they didn't even know what they were doing. They had no clue. They, if they had known what they, exactly what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. How many of you have been to a funeral somewhere you heard that was heaven? Right? You ever heard that before? That's not what it's talking about. Okay? God has revealed these things to us. And watch what it says. These things God has revealed to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit of God inspired the scriptures. And he says, we impart this in words. We're writing this down for you, what the Holy Spirit has revealed this. We're not talking about heaven. God has prepared a great place for us in heaven. That's true, but that's not what this verse is talking about. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And then 1 Timothy 3.15 says, For you have known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, the mystery of the ages is that a Messiah would come and die for your sins. And many prophets 
Many Pharisees, many Sadducees didn't see it coming, but it's been revealed to us in Scripture. And through the knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, we can become saved. My question for you this morning is, are you saved? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? You can trust Him today to save you from the punishment of your sin. You deserve to be punished. Jesus took your place. You simply confess Him as Lord of your life and Savior of your soul. I would love for everybody right now if you would to pray with me. Would you do that? And if you know for sure that you know Christ, would you pray that God would open hearts? Earlier, Moses said, ask God for open hearts, eyes, and ears. Pray that God would open people's hearts to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel. Open their eyes that they can see this truth and their ears so they can understand it. And if you're not sure you're saved, you you're not really sure whether that's happened. Maybe you try to be a religious person. You try to be a good person, but you've never really made that decision to put your faith in Christ. You can do so today. Today. Why put it off? Why harden your heart? In your own heart, reach out to Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, I trust you as my Savior. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to follow in your footsteps. I truly believe that you died for my sins, that you were buried and that you rose again, and I thank you for forgiving all my sin. In your own words, just reach out and cry out to God. Amen. Hey, if you made that decision, I'd love to hear from you. This is my cell phone. Call me or text me anytime. I'll walk you through your next steps as a new believer, a new welcome to the family of God so you know what to do as a child of God. Again, just a moment. We're going to do question and answer. So if you have something about today, there's my number right there. Um, and uh, in fact, we're going to do question and answer right now. So uh, Amanda's actually helping. So um, Linda, can I we'll put you on the spot? Linda's going to come help me with question and answer. Amanda got, we had some people who couldn't make it today to do childcare, so Amanda got dragged in there. Um, and actually right now, I am not, that's weird. Um, there was one that was sent last week. Let me see if I can find that one that I didn't see, a man I didn't see. Um, and you can even text it now if you want to bail us out here. Okay, here we go. All right. Um, and the band, you can come up while we're doing this. That one right there. Oh, Mike, right here. Sorry. What is meant by inflammation in this verse? The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Deuteronomy 28:22. Yeah, that was an interesting, bizarre phrasing from last week's message. Um, and the inflammation, we don't know exactly what it was, but in the context, it has to do a reaction to a disease. And of course... A lot of the diseases in the Bible were due to um, uncleanliness, you know, because the Bible told us thousands of years ago, wash your hands. And that wasn't even a medical practice until like 200 years ago. Um, so some of those things were caught then. Some of them, the Bible talks a lot about sexually transmitted diseases, which could cause inflammation. We don't know exactly what that one was, but it, the word inflammation means just what it says. It's inflammation. So anyway, any other questions that came up? All right, cool. That's all right. No problem. Uh, let me just double check. As soon as I say let's stand, someone's going to text in. All right, let's go ahead and stand, and let's sing to the Lord, and we'll be dismissed that way this morning.